Disclaimer, the Restless Podcast has no association with the Keller Center. The opinion of the hosts are their own, and even they change their minds. Really, they were left with no choice. So here we are with another episode of the Keller Watch. Pastor Michael, we're going to need to maybe potentially rename this segment. <laughs> no longer is this just Tim Keller Watch. We are now engaging with the newly minted Keller Center housed at the Gospel Coalition. Keller Center Watch. Keller Center Watch. We are the Institute for Commentary on the Keller Center. Um, <laughs> Normally, you come to this show because this is the Restless Podcast. I am your host, Matt Klein, joined by Pastor Michael Bowman. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I uh, I think I'm really going to enjoy our conversation. This just oh. seems like it's it's right up the alley of the kinds of things that you and I would find fun to uh, discuss. That discussed. That was a Freudian slip, maybe to mm. discuss and uh, pan and critique and um, do so in a way that's hopefully also not just full of laughter. Hopefully, some actually substantive critique. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Today we will be introducing people to the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, um, and. Um, we will see how it started. We're going to listen to Tim Keller himself introduce uh, what uh, the Keller Center is. And we're going to look at one of their very recent forays into the cultural sphere, which I have a feeling, if I can guess, if you are within the sound of my voice right now, you probably have heard and read <laughs> and seen people react to one of one of their first cultural endeavors. Um and and some of the fallout from there. So, Pastor Michael, tell me as we get going here, obviously, as we know, um, Pastor Keller is obviously he's an older man. We also know he has health concerns um, and he's just certainly he's at an age of retirement. Um, and one of the things and obviously we have questions about this, there are but there are many, many people who love specifically the work he does on like cultural issues and those kinds of things. So I don't think it's crazy at all that there's a group of people that are like, how do we keep doing the kinds of things he's been doing um, along these cultural lines? What do you think about um, this overall idea? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a culture guy, right? He's um, that is for a lot, like you said, for a lot of people that follow him, that's what they like about him for a lot of people that follow his work now that's what they don't like about him <laughs> but right. uh, for a lot of the folks that that kind of celebrate his work this is this is where it really matters right how how he has done thinking about the city and reaching particular aspects of the culture uh, and so it makes sense like you're saying that we would yeah. we would see people try to continue that legacy at least and clearly they want to, you know, continue to uh, build upon that in some way. And I think I think two things about this one, obviously, Pastor Michael and I, it's no surprise we like we do. And we have uh, communicated a deep respect for him on many things he's done. And though we rarely though, I don't think we see eye to eye on his understanding of the current cultural moment very often, though, I think the kinds of things he's done as a minister and across his ministry um, are certainly do 
um honor um and we don't we don't tend to find um a lot of the recent stuff very compelling two i do think unfortunately as i even think about this i just have to say um even before we get to how it's going right now i do think this is destined for failure not because of tim keller not because of what they're trying to do but think about uh francis schaefer for example right he was all into culture like and he and he was again similar to tim keller um uh very the people who loved what he was doing loved him for those things and a number of institutions were founded to kind of follow up on what he was doing like lebrai continues to exist and these kinds of things and they I don't know. By the time I was a new Calvinist, we're basically irrelevant, right? Yeah, like they're they're, they're still not. Gone. I mean, there are yeah. there are yeah, they know, exist uh, Libri societies and things like that. But um, they're yeah, they are definitely not some kind of um, cultural powerhouse within the church necessarily anymore. There are individuals that really benefit from them, really mm-hmm. like them, but it is a it is a small small group. And I think. This this is probably where this will eventually head, and I could be wrong. We'll how see much how. Of that, it, by the way, I mean, how much of that is just the very nature of culture? Culture, of course. Right? Like you're just you're trying to. It's it's maybe similar. You could compare it to how so many you know, um, shall we say, boomer churches or churches led by you know boomer age uh, pastors will try to be relevant like have they want a really relevant service but their understanding of relevance was shaped in the 1980s and 90s so right. they're like they're trying to be contemporary and you go and it's like oh this is like this is like super old right because right. the nature of culture especially today um in you know in ways today that it maybe wasn't true for a long time um it's so it changes so fast Right. And and right now, I mean, even more so than uh, when you and I were growing up, right? When we were growing up even, yeah, things changed fast, like every five to 10 years. Now it's like, hey, the latest trend on TikTok just hit and it's changing everything about how we think about the world. <laughs> and, and then the same thing happens two hours later. Yes. Let me tell you why the next thing is happening. You know, and it, it, things are just speeding up in that way. And obviously that can't happen forever, but the nature of culture is that it does change. It shifts, it changes because of so many different dynamics, Um, but trying to present uh, a a singular cultural vision that began at one point point in time, and then trying to expand upon that going down into the future, it just, it doesn't seem like it can possibly last. Yeah, let's go ahead and say it's actually way easier for us to pick on Tim Keller in the time we live in Tim Keller's cultural takes than probably create cogent ones because we just have to wait five minutes and go look how dated that idea is, right? Like, you know, like it would be much it would be much more um, difficult and probably um, interesting like we're to be like, well, let's try and figure out how this how these things were happening in New York in the 90s, right? Like that would put us at like a incredible difficulty. I actually think one of the reasons um, they are going to keep this going, at least for a time, um, again, is because Tim Keller, right, as many people know, other than the the things that he's done that have been controversial, Tim Keller really is staking kind of all of his final capital and thought, it seems, 
uh, training, probably prayer on this idea of how do we go beyond secularism? What is that going to take? And I would guess like the, the Keller Center, I assume it probably has a very modest idea. And again, obviously that's in a massive undertaking, but right. I would guess it's going to, it has this kind of thing. We want to, we want to equip people to do this. So before we watch them, why they're launching this, um, Pastor Michael, what do you think about cultural apologetics? This is a thing people talk about now. You still probably can't get a seminary class in this, even though there are a number of groups becoming famous for cultural apologetics. I just want to know what it means. Like, who who are you apologize? Like, what's the what's the apology for? Um, the the defense for? Like, you're defending culture. That's what it sounds like a little bit. Um, or are you? What I you know presume the understanding is is we are having a kind of of you know defense of the church in a cultural form that will be understandable or um, something like that. Uh, but it just it just seems like the kind of thing that can be so broad that it doesn't really have a meaning, you know. Like, and so many people could say, yeah, I'm into cultural apologetics and mean wildly different things. Oh, and I think that is completely the case because, for example, as someone who would be almost the polar opposite of Tim Keller, uh, Joe Boot at the Ezra Institute in Canada also brands himself as into cultural apologetics, Hmm. right? And it's, but it's this idea. And I actually think it's something somewhere close to something we've mentioned in our past is that so we have the William Lane Craig, I give arguments for the rational rationality, rational positions of believing in God. Cultural apologetics are, I'm going to deal with cultural issues and use those as, you know, defending Christian positions or like interacting with these kinds of things. That's me use, defining it as broadly as I possibly can, because there are so, as you said, there are so many people that mean this in such different ways, right? Because I am I assume there's probably someone out there meaning this is why you should care about high art and be should become a high art commentator. Or this would also be a person saying, this is why we need to be at every abortion mill and state house, um, you know, demanding the end to abortion. And and I'm not saying those any of those are negative. Obviously, I think one of those is way more beneficial and important than the other in the in those two examples. Yep. But that I'm saying that this is going to be a very diverse kind of thing. So perhaps what we just need to do then is we need to listen to Tim Keller himself introduce us to the Keller Center. We now live in a post-Christendom culture. For at least a thousand years, Western culture has been what you might call Christendom culture. Even if most people were not devout Christians, there was a positive understanding of Christianity in the culture. The great majority of the people had a positive understanding of the church. And so it was not that difficult to get people in the door. And many, 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 many people went to church just because they felt they should, even if they didn't have a devout or vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Secondly, the culture instilled in people 
a certain amount of background beliefs that the Bible assumes. They, they assume there was a moral law. They assume that what, there was some kind of moral absolutes. They also knew they needed forgiven. So they had a sense of being sinners, even if they didn't use the word. They believed in a life after death. They believed in a personal God. The culture instilled dots. And evangelism was just connecting the dots. And so if you came to them and said to almost anybody in the culture, hey, when you die, you certainly want to know that you're going to go to a good place, right? And you're trying to live a good life, but you know you don't really live up to it. And nobody lives as well as they should. But in Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven so you can know that when you die, you would go to heaven. Aren't you interested in that? But what if the dots aren't there? All right. So he's just laid out the uh, shift that he is foreseeing um, or not foreseeing is just observing, I should say, in uh, Western culture. Pretty much inarguable, right? At this point, this is pretty much what the case is. Yeah, straight down the line, I'll be interested to hear where he goes because I know, you know, I mean, I, I, right away, I'm like, yeah, it sounds kind of like, you know, Aaron Wren's three three different uh, uh, ways of looking at where the culture has been or things like that. But I also know that Keller's been very critical at times of of uh, Wren. And so I'll be yep. interested to hear where, is there a jump? How different is it? You know, well, I'll be interested to hear if the neutral the sure. neutral view um, is what holds or not. The issue, the the only issue I want to point out is that, and and I don't know that I can put this one on Mister Pastor Keller himself. Do you know how many TGC people have been declaring this is a good thing, <laughs> and wow. how yeah, how yeah. actually objectively bad this is? I like, did. Wow, I did not. I did not remember that. But you are correct that many have said that yes, the death of of the so-called Christian culture is a good thing for, and they'll say it for evangelism. Correct. The opposite. that's that was part of the claim, right? Like, uh, yeah. How did they? How was it put? What was the? Wasn't there? A, well, kind it of has a to do with article. The, um, well, it just has to do with right. Like, there's no more hypocrisy, right? Yeah. There's no more like, um, you know, people just claiming they're a Christian because, um, you know, we're gonna because their social press hurt but instead now they have zero and again as i've as i've come back to the u.s i find this increasingly true i find i've been shocked with the amount of people that it was not my experience beforehand who have said i have zero knowledge of these things yeah and, and so that's exponential, right? exponential you think about just how exponential that is when a culture starts to slip in that way and all of a sudden, okay, well, you know, well, you know, we're the first generation to not go to church and not teach our kids about God. And then boom, I mean, in 20 years and 40 years, that right. is like the, the, the cultural change that comes from that is radical. Right. And I'm not here to cry about it. I'm not here to bemoan it, but right. That is where we are. And, the, and the celebration that, oh yeah, like this was that there was some kind of of a positive that was going to come from this, right? That we were going to be in exile. And, you know, we were this romantic notion is no, now people don't have any sense of Jesus, their need for sin. Right. All Evangelism is actually significantly more difficult in a, so, in a number of ways. And so if you, so here's the big lesson for me in cultural apologetics, as I listen to this from Tim Keller today, if you care about lost people around you when when you have the chance you will do your best to instantiate 
these values and beliefs in your culture. That's your takeaway so far. That's my. I just takeaways. have a feeling like we're not gonna go in that direction. I don't know. I <laughs> we're we're about halfway done with this video. What if people don't believe in God? Don't believe in moral absolutes? Don't believe they're sinners? And what if you can't get them in the door to come to church to hear the gospel preached from the pulpit? And now your mega churches will die for one. So we can uh, we can take that as a silver lining. <laughs> and how do you win people to Christ in a post-Christendom era? And the church does not have any idea how to do it. The way the Keller Center is seeking to address this is that we want to raise up a new generation of younger thinkers and ministers and leaders who are able to do evangelism and cultural apologetics in a post-Christendom situation or milieu. If the Keller Center is successful and this new generation of younger thinkers and writers and scholars produce great cultural apologetics in a compelling way to secular people, very secular people, the church itself will start to translate this content. It'll find all sorts of platforms and vehicles for the content that the Keller Center is producing. And if that happens... All right, so let us let me take one, one moment here to talk about things in light like we're in a we are here's the weird thing we're already talking about a content strategy like we yeah. are we are we're way out there like this isn't this is this isn't new right we're not a this isn't very modest right this isn't a modest attempt so far this is bold so far here's here's one of my takes about culture today if you want to be involved and in getting your message out there and doing these culture things Given the way things change and explode and there are a million niches and all these things exist right now, if I, if that's another thing that has grown up, uh, which I think it has, then do you think forming a singular center with a unified content strategy is the way to do it or to be as small and as nimble and as like we can make whatever we want whenever we want um, to talk to whoever we can and whoever will listen at any given time. Yeah, super interesting. Even then pushing that a little bit further into the strategy of the church, right? Which he has just said that the church has no idea <laughs> yeah. how to evangelize these people, right? No people idea. in this context. Now, I will give you that I do think that we're in a context that is substantially different in some ways. I think that we have thinkers that have gone before us and have already thought through um, what that is going to look like and mean, guys like C.S. Lewis and others. Um, we are in a different context, though, than, say, like an old school paganism, where you have people that have some basic understanding of nature and the way the world is, there must be something outside of it. Like there, there are things that people just don't have today that they maybe have had in the past. Um, and in that way, there's some difference. However, you know, maybe one way, like even to connect to what you're saying of, hey, you want to be as, as nimble, as, uh, you know, small, I might add as local as possible, so that you have uh, many, many different um, small expressions of the church in given local contexts that are able to reach that given context um, with the gospel because they know it, because they live in it, because they're a part of it. Um, and that just sounds to me like planting churches that, mm. you know, are focused on the ordinary means of grace and equipping the saints for ministry and then just doing that more, you know, well, like, let's do more of that. What if you had a content strategy instead? Like, 
I, I just think that, man, the other thing that, and I guess we'll have to see, get, go there when we get to the, how it's going section of our podcast. Um, when we say the young thinkers that yeah, know how I, to talk to secular people, I wrote this down to the younger, you know, if these younger thinkers who, what? <laughs> right. There's all these younger thinkers who, who, who seem to know how to talk to secular people. Now, to give a shout out to our Patreon, we uh, released a uh, clip today of reviewing Mark Driscoll's trailer for his new sermon series, which, again, is a hilarious, strange joke that sermon series have trailers and whatnot now. Um, do you think like that? Do you think that like I'm going to come as Elijah down from the mountain to to shout that my God is Yahweh at a pagan nation? Do you think that's the way we are to we're going to? that's the kind of way we're going to reach the secular people. Is that the methodology we're proposing? Wow. Well, what I will say is that I find it more compelling so far. I mean, that sounds more compelling to me. Or, I'm not saying it is in that case, <laughs> but the idea of it. Or do you sure. think it might sound a little more like a, a certain methodology that Tim Keller really loves, which is, I know what you want. And what you re what really gives that to you, your deepest longing of that longing is found in Christ. Do you Here's think your desire? That, yep. That might be the kind of methodology we might be proposing. Wow. Um, that is what I'm going to expect. And I just I mean, I can't unread the article that we're about to discuss. And, <laughs> and now and now you're about to find out when we read the article or discuss the article why this was the first one of the first things put out mm. by the Keller Institute. So let's finish this video first, kind of uh, again, again, to see how the, the plans. The reversal of the decline of the evangelical church in this country will take place. The second thing is many, many younger people are leaving the event. Let me just say that he's again, this promises a reversal of the diminishment of the evangelical church. Um, very possible. Uh, very, I hope so. Also, not definitely for sure in any way, because we could just be under God's judgment and he could just be raining death from the skies on a society that deserves it. And 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 then we're not going to get that kind of revival. Right. Yeah. No matter how great a young thinkers uh, YouTube videos, the Gospel Coalition shares church for a variety of reasons but one of them is this just as we do not know how to effectively evangelize highly secular people in the same way we really don't know how to protect our own young people from the narratives and the uh, arguments and the messages of our secular culture because when you do cultural apologetics you may be winning people to christ who are not believers but everyone knows that apologetics also serve as a kind of strengthening of the faith and the belief, especially of younger Christians. And therefore, the cultural apologetics will not just do evangelism, it'll do formation. And I think it also, 20 years from now, hopefully it'll close that back door so that more young people are coming into the church than are leaving. And that's our hope for what change and difference the Keller Center could make to the church. There you go, thekellercenter.org. Now, let's let's answer this question. Who is this kind of presentation for? Who's who's the person who 
who's watching this and is going, I really, I need, I need this kind of, uh, I need this kind of material. If I'm honest, it gives me the same vibes as a lot of the stuff I mentioned before, right? Like boomer churches that are like, we need to be relevant. We need to really um, like find those relevant things. And it usually, the reason I say that is because there was such an emphasis on the young people. Look right. what's happening Hello, to my the fellow youths. I'm... Yeah, that's what it feels like. And to that point, yeah, actually, there are challenges and there are questions, and there are a lot of younger people that have been leaving the evangelical church. Part of that is because, um, by and large, a lot of evangelicalism has been a halfway house for unbelief for a long time. It's been where you go while you're heading toward apostasy. Mm. And there, you know, are lots of ways that we could talk about that. Um, but beyond beyond that, um, it seems like there's always, maybe not always, but there there is a constant um, fear that we're going to lose the young people of the church, right? And especially in a time of of you know institutional distrust, cultural collapse in various ways, um, family collapse. Uh, it should be expected that we're going to see a lot more younger folks that that do uh, you know move in that direction. However, what I will say is that the same people who are saying, "Look at the younger folks. Look, we got to do something for these younger people. We have to prepare them better. We have to do better for them." They also um, seem to mock at times those who would say wow, I really want to protect the younger people. Let's bring them out of public schools. Let's mm. teach them uh, at home or in Christian schools or or those sorts of things. Um, yeah, you'd, you'd think that would sound like an, an inescapable aspect of, of the project that he has presented that we need to trip, double down, triple down on taking seriously the education of the children in churches. If one of the major concerns is that open back door. Yeah. Yeah. You would think so. That's what, you know, it's just striking that you, you would have those who are so um, interested in preserving young people in the church who th would also at the same time think that that's crazy. I wonder, right? that, I wonder if there's an opening at the Keller Center for a fellow like you or me to say like, hey, so now we should instantiate Christianity into the culture. We should double down on um, what it means to do Christian education, because I do hear there might be an opening spot for one of the fellow <laughs> positions. Are you telling me that somebody got the boot? Well, we'll get there. Now, I want to ask one more question. So I do think this is, again, like this this constant like the youth the, hello my youths like <laughs> can i just say like i love wise older people and i do not understand the like we got to get someone young in here to tell us what's going on like yeah, i this is a boomer i'm telling you this is a boomer phenomenon um it's every i, I don't know why the that wise is. it people, might be the, the like, wise the people worship. i love yeah like the worship of adolescence right like the because it, think about it maybe on the same in the same way as how many people just, they want to be young, right? The idea of aging and getting older, instead of being seen like a glorious thing, um, which it can be, right? It's not guaranteed to be, but it can right. be if you are living a wise life, then the, the glory of an old man is his gray hair, right? Like it's, this is a good thing 
um, when you are wise, when you're living a virtuous life, when you're you're honoring God and how you live. Um, aging is actually this is a a fine thing, and it brings its own difficulties, but it also brings a lot of blessings. It it can bring you into a place of greater and greater influence. There's a lot of good. It gives you greater wisdom, so you can be more helpful over time. Um, but there has been this, you know, this um, focus on, I want to be young. I want to stay young. I don't want to look older, right? So now you have 50, 60-year-old people that dress like they're a teenager, and they just try to look that way and act that way. Uh, and that has clearly also, whatever that is, uh, whatever that cultural movement is, it has clearly also uh, affected the way that we think about truth, right? And if truth is most closely tied, we've talked about this, the the, the juvenilization of American Christianity that, you know, if, mm. if true, truly following God means that you're the most passionate person, and by passionate, we mean emotional in some way, right? Zealous and emotional. Who are the most emotional and zealous people? It is it's adolescents, it's teenagers, it's young people. Uh, because as you get older, you get wiser and more knowledgeable. Yeah. And uh, you know, an older person who is completely given to their passions and emotions um, and desires is is a person that nobody trusts, nobody goes to for help, nobody, nobody's gonna listen to. Right. Uh, but in in youth, it still uh, a, appeals to us in some regard. And older people, like they they actually have them. And again, it's not that it's this weird thing, right? It's not that they lack. It's actually that they have much deeper emotions, right? Like, yes. just imagine how much more devastating it is to watch a 70 year old woman cry than a 13 year old girl. Right. Yeah. And you implicitly understand. Wow. The the there. The, the two reasons these people are crying are not in any way in the same world. Like yep. one of these life has, you know, like you, you would assume one of them has experienced the death of a, an in, incredibly close loved one. The other like had a rough day, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But the other thing yeah. is I would like Look to start at us doing a cultural apologetic. I know I would like to start a center, a center for old wise people to just tell me things like where it's just <laughs> like you can, you can tell me things. Um, I also think as I'm out here doing, um, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm doing church planting. So I'm not doing cultural apologetics. I'm doing something like apologetics evangelism and teaching. And obviously there are plenty of Gen Z zombies, right. Who are like, who you know who don't look up but you know what i find like with any like engaged person in gen z they're like desperate for you to just give them substance like yep, desperate yep. for like like i pull out a bible in places and they like crowd around like let's just hear what this guy's gonna say and i'm not like i'm not i am far from interest like the the stereotypical interesting thing i'm just willing to say i will talk for an hour on this chapter of the bible and answer whatever questions we want to discuss about it and that's like this is maybe the best thing that's ever happened to me mm -hmm. um which tells me substance is the answer now what that means pastor michael is we have come to the time where we should engage with the substance the how it's going here with the keller center so 
Pastor Michael, one of the first articles they put out um, was by a young a young thinker named Josh Butler. Um, Josh Butler. Now, I think it's very interesting. Uh, what a guy. He serves as a lead pastor in Redemption Tempe in Arizona. Now, let's be clear. When you're a lead pastor in one of these non-denominational things, I mean, this guy is certainly older than Pastor Michael and I, right? So even the idea that this is like a young and up-and-comer, like he's probably kind of where he's going to be, you know, in his life and in his career. Uh, he's just younger than Tim Keller, which is fine. Uh, I think what's really interesting is he has, I was kind of surprised, he has a quite a number of articles on um, the Gospel Coalition. Um, but, uh, right, he has articles like, is marijuana ever okay for Christians? Is it wrong for engaged couples to live together? How evangelism works in a post-Christian culture? Uh, urban churches and gentrification, the great physician for COVID-19, Gen Z questions about Christianity, hell and judgment. And so he's this, he's this kind of guy. Now, what I want to say is, um, I actually at one point followed this guy rather closely. Um, I would just say what's interesting about him is that he is a bit, um, going to be a bit more progressive than the original kind of coalition of young, new Calvinists that would have formed the gospel coalition. Now, I don't mean that in like, uh, he's I'm not saying he's a wild, progressive um, TikTok pastor. Right. I'm not talking in that realm. I'm just saying, like, generally, he would uh, the places I listened to him on uh, when I listened to interviews with him, uh, they were just groups that would have been. Yeah, would have would have viewed would have been at least egalitarian in their in their meaning. Um, right. And again, like I think you see it with the book he's most well known for, which is his book, um, The Skeletons in God's Closet, The Mercy of Hell the surprise of judgment and the hope of holy war because what it really is is i know there are all these things in the bible you find really distasteful and tough right and it's this like how can i help you work through them which isn't a bad um but right it's you know it's dan kimball scott mcknight right just generally people that are going to be um just further further to further to the left yeah, in so progressive evangelicals right they're yeah. evangelical um, they believe in, say, you know, the authority of the Bible and and the things that it teaches, but they're going to be more egalitarian. They're going to yep. be leaning in those directions. Yeah, they're going to they're going to want to say, is there a way is there a way we can talk around, you know, like how what is the what is the real bottom line we have to accept about hell? Right. You know, these kinds of things. Right. And so um, and that's OK. Right. I Again, I'm, but, and so I just think the only reason I'm pointing it out is because I think it's interesting that the Keller Center and the Gospel Coalition in general is kind of already like, let's let's widen this out a little bit more. Now, um, now maybe uh, maybe as I probably became more conserved, maybe Butler, Josh Butler himself did, too. You know, who knows? Right. Um, but he pu he published an article now, even saying he published an article is problematic. And we will come to why in a moment. Yes. <laughs> called Sex Won't Save You but it points to the one who will. And um, Pastor Michael, how did that go publishing this this little article by the gospel? Wow. Um, I have never, I don't think I've ever seen the way that everyone that I follow on Twitter, and I my, my follows are fairly broad, mm -hmm. um, my, and, and social media in general, right? It wasn't just Twitter, I guess, but I just saw the most on Twitter. Um, but the way that people from very different camps in very different places 
how they all condemned this. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it was wild. I didn't even read it until today, by the way. I didn't read it till way after. You had to send me the Wayback Machine archive version because they've evidently gotten rid of it. Uh, well, but I gone, hadn't baby. actually read it. I just saw all of the hullabaloo about it and was thinking about some of the issues involved. I've read some quotes from it that were a little jarring, shall we say, but um, I had not actually uh, read the post itself. But it was, I mean, it was routinely condemned across the board by so many different folks with with different takes on why it wasn't good and and yeah. why um it was problematic but not not uh beyond that it it is pretty fascinating that the young restless and reformed who is whose unity on almost everything has shattered completely came together for one last final no to yell one last no <laughs> i mean it was like everyone it was everyone i mean that's that's the most interesting thing about this that everyone joined together to say no now they published this article because in the spring he was going to be leading a seven-week online cohort so a seven-week course online course on the beauty of the christian sexual sexual ethic so this was like this was the like promo like here's how to get excited I how did not know that where we're going to teach you how to talk about sex with these deeply secular people. So, Pastor Michael, now that you've read the article, do you how do you feel like um, do you think people would have come away and it was limited to 200 people because, right, they wanted to keep it nice and intimate. You know, I think the Restless podcast would like to say we're going to limit our patrons to 200 people. Right. We you know, we're not going to take more people on. Uh, once we're above 200, we'll do something wild with all 200 of you. If we ever actually hit that mark, um, uh, if maybe... we get 200 people and somebody else wants to join, I'm just going to say you're still going to be welcome. I'm not. <laughs> I won't let Matt hold us to this. What, but what's we're going to teach it? We will teach if we get to 200 patrons. Michael and I will teach us, which we're very week, far from. <laughs> very far. That's why I feel free to make this next promise. We will teach a seven-week online cohort on cultural apologetics. Um, so there you go. This would be um, fun, actually. I would enjoy doing that. Um, um, also, but but bef so become a patron. Please subscribe on YouTube. We're on our way. But so, Pastor Michael, this yeah, this was going to be the way forward, especially talking about a thing that in our time is very you know would be you know like when you think about talking to your very secular neighbors, starting with what Christians believe and teach about sex probably is like really far down the list of the thing you want to like make your intro. And so I think it's a very interesting thought experiment to think, how could I actually do that? Make talking about sexual issues. Um, now we we're go we'll have to answer how appropriate that would be if I was like going up to my neighbors and be like, you know, sex, huh? What do you think about that? what do you think <laughs> about that? Right. Like how horrible of a like like, let me tell you what it's really about. Let yeah. me tell you what you're really desiring. So, so, <laughs> so Pastor Michael, I don't know. So the I only way that this, like anybody thought this was okay is because it's like an article being put out or a piece from a book um, that's being put out. And it's all like an, an insider peer group, right? Like right. you're, it's, you're all already talking about these things. This isn't something that you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis, right? You're yeah. not like you're putting it in the terms of talking to your neighbor. Yeah, you're not doing it like this. Maybe as a pastor, if somebody asks you a question 
in a counseling session, you're like, well, let me explain a little bit about maybe some of the symbolism uh, or or something like that of scripture. But this is uh, this is not where you lead off with for so, an evangelistic encounter. So, so Pastor Michael, then uh, summarize for us what what he's do what he was doing in this article. Um, um, if you can do so in a winsome way, because Pastor Michael, it just snowed a heavy wet snow on me four inches today. So winsome winter is still here. So, okay, let's try to be winsome. Um, the, the most like um, PG 13 <laughs> version of what he's trying to do is to say that uh, that sexual union sex like sex itself is something that points us to the reality of the the intimacy and union of jesus and his people that's um that's where he was clearly attempting to go and and so the point is again to get back to the way i think the reason i think this is one of the first things they put out is um this is that idea of like, you know what you want? You want sexual pleasure. What you really want is the intimacy of Jesus and his people. And so like, here's my, here's my really crazy hot take. That's just such a lame way to talk about these things. It's very (laughs) lame. And do you know what? It's not how the apostles talk about these things. When they talk about central minds, they talk, these are debased people. Like when their minds are like, I need to find a way to think about sex in in all circumstances, the the apostles don't say, well, you know what you should really be thinking about right now. Yeah, no, Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, whatever is carnal in you, right? Sexual immorality, passions, all of this, and rather put on what? Like put on these fruit of the spirit, put on um, these virtuous things um, rather than being so... Uh, obsessed in this way and yeah I, yeah so we'll get more so, into the article <laughs> yeah yeah so um i guess this this episode might go long and that's okay i still have about 30 minutes but um so what then happened was the whole internet at the top of its lungs screamed no and, <laughs> please and tgc please stop and tgc went wow we've had to turn off comments on our twitter before but nothing like this right like it was it was friends. like it was like, complete everybody everybody was holding hands and like you know hey maybe that's a good thing like the gospel coalition brought us together for like maybe like 20 minutes it correct. brought everybody together so so also the other thing i want to say is why it's sort of an error to say um josh butler put out this article is that it's a section from chapter 1 of a book he wrote called Beautiful Union, How God's Vision for Sex Points Us to the Good, Unlocks the True, and Sort of Explains Everything. Um, we'll, we'll come back to why that is, again, a weird a weird title. And we'll come back to it right after this, because the internet yelled no. Um, TGC, whatever their donor base is, the likelihood of this, you know, think of, I'm sure they got 200 signups for this course, but I will bet you money. They were not 200 people going, I can't wait to hear what this guy has to say. It was 200 trolls ready to just republish the video of this to everyone. (laughs) Um, And so they released this statement, beautiful union book. 
We recognize that the adapted excerpt from Joshua Butler's upcoming forthcoming book, Beautiful Union, lacks sufficient context to be helpful in this format. The excerpt was taken from the first chapter of Beautiful Union, and you can download and read the entire introduction and first chapter here, at which point they put out which you can still find on the Wayback Machine. So here's a little lesson for everyone uh, and hear us on the Restless Podcast. If you put something out on the internet, it never is coming. You, it's, it's there. We can still find it. <laughs> it's, it's always going to be there. And if you don't know how to use the Wayback Machine, I guess um, I guess maybe you'll learn. So they released 36 pages of the book. Uh, and let me just say, this follows a... This follows a Keller cultural practice, if I can say so, which is when <laughs> criticized, say, read this immense you amount haven't of read material. enough. Yeah, you the problem is you that you haven't read enough. And so um, they provided again, they provided, you know, the entire table of contact. <laughs> I, I just I love sorry to break it again, but yeah. that is so funny that the very first post from the Keller Center pulls the Keller move of you just haven't read enough. That's so good. It is good. <laughs> that is picture perfect. So they, and this book, by the way, is a 225 page book. Like this wow. is, this is a, um, yeah, this T- is talking about cultural apologetics. People don't read that stuff anymore, man. Right. Do a TikTok video, but please right. don't. But, yeah. but <laughs> so here's the thing that really comes out in the introduction of this uh, book is he is insistent that sex is an icon and using the Eastern Orthodox theology of icons to understand sex at or through, right? Like, you know, like uh, the Eastern Orthodox are criticized because we're like, hey, it kind of looks like you're worshiping that picture right now uh, because they're praying to it, kissing it. And they would say, we're doing that. No, we're worshiping God through the icon, right? That is that is their thing. Again, he has sex as an icon, a section called at or through with a second commandment violation. Next page, second commandment violation, uh, <laughs> images of Christ. And so he is insisting like the the direction he's going is to say that. And this is where things like where the context doesn't help, just like in many the of context made it so much worse. Because, it actually yeah. does. It makes it so much worse. So, Pastor Michael, tell us tell us what the a problem could be of sex being an icon again in this not symbolizing something not um pointing us to a bigger reality which are things that like okay we'll, and we'll and we can talk about that but with the specific religious significance of an icon what what problem could you foresee uh coming releasing this chapter too oh man uh well, so if we just back up i don't know if we've mentioned this cuz maybe somebody hasn't read the gospel coalition article or heard about, but I mean, he uses very explicit imagery. Yeah. I want to come back to that last. I want to come back to the actual potential, that explicit imagery. I think this is part of the problem, right? Right. Like if this is an icon, so he says, right. Number one, that is, that is not something that you find in scripture itself, that, that sex is an icon of this relationship. Now, And Matt and I were discussing this a little bit before uh, we we started to record, but uh, scripture does, for instance, and he even mentions that in Ephesians 5, um, we are told that marriage 
is a picture, you yep. might say, you might use the word icon, um, although that comes with a lot of baggage, um, right. to to uh, tell us about Christ and the church, to refer to, as Paul says, Christ and the church. Uh, now, obviously, like a biblical understanding of marriage includes certain uh, aspects of the sexual relationship. That is a that is an important part of marriage. But to then say, well, actually, the thing that we're talking about is let me explain the explicit mechanics of sex and how each detail of earthly sexual relationship and pleasure is that's what's being talked about. Right. That is to go way, way further than the scripture ever does. Do, do you think I should read that paragraph? I mean, it's been all over the internet. Well, I, I think and, you should, right? It's been shared. Oh, I think so. Yeah. Right. Hey, so, um, hide your kids. Like, uh, you know, um, if your kids first, are here, this might not be the best place to yeah, uh, have them. Right. If you want to hear, we're going to just read a, a little bit from the, read the text of the article. I want to read the section where he used the term icon in what was pu published as the article that caused me to not think much about it. Because again, it was just like, oh, it's a one-off thing. And then when you read the chapter and he's like, my entire introduction is explaining the theology of iconography and how this actually, maybe it doesn't apply to little images, but it does apply to sex. So he says, sex is an icon of Christ in the church. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, a hall of fame marriage passage, the apostle Paul proclaims, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. The one thing I just want to say when we even talk about this passage from Ephesians is this is actually already an error. If Paul is making marriage, is he says, is a picture of Christ and the church. Marriage, the mystery of marriage is that it's of Christ and the church. And this already move to generalize it to sex is already a problem. It's yep. already, this is like, if you want to say, how do, where does this going wrong? It's here because Paul isn't saying a desire for sex is an implicit under pointing to what God has made in Christ in the church. He says marriages. Yes. Now, I don't think that eliminates that part of the marriage uh, relationship. And right, but that is what provides the actually helpful context in which yes. to understand all of this. Right. Yes. And this, but this is just, this is of course the move that somebody who has just com been completely indoctrinated by an over-sexualized culture would make, right? Like that is the move you would make. A pornified culture is a culture where even within marriage, like everything is just the explicit sexual details, right? Like right. that's the focus. And so the, the, the other problem becomes when you then talk about this as an icon, so an icon is something through which I experience the divine, through which I commune with God. And so, of course, the reformers, and and we'll get there when we talk to the chosen, everybody, everybody's new favorite icon uh, in the entertainment <laughs> industry to finish off, to finish off Winston Winter. Um, we say, hey, it, it seems like you're taking created realities and applying transcendent practices and meaning to them in a way that we shouldn't that actually will lead me to idolatry will lead you to idolatry and if this is true inherently cut people off from being able to participate in the divine right it, there are people who will not 
who do not engage in sex. There are people, in fact, who God has called not to do that, right? Who he calls right. to celibacy. Um, but there are also people who just can't, for other reasons, they cannot participate in sexual relations, even in a lawful way. And that means that they are cut off from the transcendent. Right. And so if sex is an icon, what we're actually, the real problem is we are getting to the point where what you are basically creating Christianity is to a worship of sex, yep. a worship of sex. And sex is now what the one thing Paul was really sure he didn't want sex to be in the Christian church was like a, a part of a religious act, a religious rite. Paul, that was like, we have got to, the Old Testament, right? The prophets condemned this in all the religions because it is unsurprising to a person, to anyone, that this kind of, inc this incredibly intimate human union can become, receive religious overtones, especially since it's designed to be inside of marriage, which is part of how it points to what God and the relationship between God and his people which, of course, is why there will be no marriage in heaven. Therefore, there will be no uh, sexual union in heaven, because the realities at which those things um, get at will be fulfilled and the sinful instantiations of those will be condemned. Now, let me read the article that made everyone lose their mind. And then we we can. Uh, and that's also why, again, as I said, I have a kind of a weird thing of the problem with the kind of title of this book, right, that this sex explains everything right is that you've you've made it you've inherently made it everything so here's the article here's the paragraph that everyone had a huge problem with also he talks about how sex is the ultimate um instantiation of generosity and hospitality which kind of ruins those words for people <laughs> who are generous and hospitable um because there are because guess what single people can be generous and hospitable too. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know. All right, but here we go. All right, I'm going to read this out loud, and I'm going to do so with a straight face. This is a picture of the gospel. Christ arrives in salvation, not only to be with his church, but within his church. Christ himself gives himself to his beloved with extravagant generosity, showering his love upon us, imparting his very presence within us. Christ penetrates his church with the generative seed of his word and the life-giving presence of his spirit, which takes root within her and grows to bring new life in the world. Inversely. Oh, so I think we. That was knew. the main. Yeah. I mean, that that's the main, main chunk that a lot of people were sharing around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so because it's the mo one of the most kind of explicit portions of yeah. the article. Right. So. um, So what we get here is um, what we see, of course, is this. Um, yeah, this very explicit language now. So the, the post to his, um, book was later replaced, uh, and it was posted with a letter from Julius Kim, who is the president of the gospel coalition. So TGC pulled a, um, pulled rank on the Keller center, which it houses to write this letter, dear readers. Thank you for your feedback on the Keller center's book excerpt from Joshua Butler posted on March 1st, 2023. And thank you for your patience while we took the time to listen to our critics and the serious objections from concerned fellows as well. Discuss this matter with our board of directors 
and care for our friend Josh. Earlier this week, we accepted Josh's resignation as the Keller Center Fellow. He will no longer lead an online cohort with the Center North Speak at TGC 23. While he will not participate in these events, Josh remains a beloved brother and friend whom we care and respect and care deeply about. To our fellows and readers, please forgive us. The Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is a new effort by TGC, and we are still learning how to work with our directors and our fellows to produce content that will serve our readers in a way that is trusted and wise. To ensure greater accountability with our fellows, we will develop better review systems for our work together. We will also review our publication process more broadly at TGC and will develop plans to ensure greater accountability to you and our readers. Again, thank you for your patience with us. At TGC, we want to provide a venue for healthy dialogue and robust debate on important matters that affect us all. We want to model grace-filled conversations, and we want to learn from one another. In this case, we've failed you and hurt many friends. Thank you in advance for your continued prayers for Christ and his gospel, Julius Kim, president of the Gospel Coalition. So Pastor Michael, again, one thing people pointed out is that is that's an, right, that is an apology, right? I mean, would you agree that they've essentially apologized at this point? There was, yeah, I mean, definitely a kind of a, a apology. Yeah. So tell me, what do you think about this, uh, this move, this, this occurrence? Um, by the way, Joshua Butler, uh, love you, love to have you on the show. I bet you just went ahead and resigned. I, I don't think they forced him to resign. I would guess this guy's like, dude, if this is, if this right, if this is the thanks I get right with friends like these, who needs enemies, right? Like I would just resign too. That's what's so weird about it is that like we need to, you know, update our review process. What like this guy didn't just like post this somewhere. Right. This went through editors. It had to, right? I mean, I well, I assume does TGC just give out a link to anybody that they say can write for them where it just automatically posts to TGC? No, there's right. no way. This goes through a significant editorial work. Also, you had guys like uh, you know, is it Brett McCracken? Is that his name? Yeah. Um I can't remember what's his role. Isn't he one of the head editors? Oh yeah, at he's, TGC. He's not the editor in chief because that is still uh, Colin Hansen, Brett McCracken. I have to. I have to look it up now, um, and maybe I don't want to misspeak. He's I don't a senior wanna... editor and the director for communications at the Gospel Coalition. Yes, wow, and director for communication. And so this guy tweeted out that this. This Josh Butler is writing what is the Protestant magnum opus on sex. So right. that's I mean, that this is the guy that was helping to edit this. Yeah. And he's he was all in. Right. I mean, he's he's all in. He thinks this is it um, as far as it goes. So the fact that like this guy, Butler, is just getting the boot that just it just feels disingenuous. Right. Like it it feels a little bit like we're just trying to. We're just trying to distance ourselves from him and make him bear all of it. And he should bear some of it, right? I mean, if, you know, you wrote it, but also there's also um, all these stories now of people that like had little blurbs for his book that are now coming out and saying, I want you to remove my name from it. Did you not read it before? Right. Like, did you seriously just not read the book and put your name on it? That's what it seems like a lot of people did. That paragraph, by the way, that everyone was um, offended by. Um, or at least acting offended by again we do live in an unfortunate time and i do this is one piece of sympathy i have for the author we live in a time where um 
performative outrage is a thing like people yes both enjoy and get something out of like being mad at you which they is just too join bad. in um because right i can be like yeah that was a bad idea i'm not like oh oh for shit like I, you know i'm not again i'm not shocked here um but yeah i, I just think that like obvious i mean this went through editors at a book this book was endorsed that paragraph is verbatim in the book someone yep. had to pick out sections of the book to publish to the website in order to help plan a seven-week course that this person was going to lead there are so many people involved that are just it's just gonna be brushed aside like yep we're not you know we're not right. really gonna look into them um and that's why i don't like that he's just you know just leave it up and say okay uh, you know i thought that you just said that you're really interested in having a place for open dialogue and robust debate. Right. If, but if some, if a bunch of people just really don't like what you've put up, well, maybe be willing to defend it a little bit more. Right. Um, and here's the thing, this, you know, um, there, there are so many different ways we could talk about this and we don't want to belabor some of the, you know, nope. the, the sexual imagery and stuff, but um, it is, as I was thinking about this, one of the first things I thought about when people were talking about it, and I had not read it at all, right? I hadn't read it. Uh, but one of the things I thought about was, well, there's like a truth hidden in there, right? Like that the idea of of sexual union being used in scripture as uh, one of the analogies of the union of, of Christ and his church. That's clearly there in places. Uh, right. But when I thought about how scripture even speaks of these things, it is not in like this, this uh, pornified way. And I'm not a pearl clutcher when it comes to language, right? I, I have a farm and we, we are raising kids in a way that we talk very anatomically about things that are going on on the farm, right? Like it's, I'm not against the idea of just talking very bluntly about the anatomy of a man or a woman and what sex is right. Just that, that right. physical act. I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Now I think there's context for it. <laughs> you know, I don't think you should just do that anywhere. Uh, but, and that's what made me think, you know, actually the scripture does speak very explicitly at times uh, about sexual themes, but the times that it speaks explicitly, as far as I can think of are almost always negative, right? It's mm. the, the times that God will speak through the prophets and use very what is very you know um, strong jarring language it's usually in condemnation of them right it's right. it's in a sense like like removing the veil and showing the lewdness of the actions of his people of how whereas when it's spoken of in in its proper terms right in 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 healthy context in context where this is a good thing a right thing a gift of god all of this it is almost always spoken of in some kind of analogy hmm. or in some kind of way that is always veiled. There's always a veil over it in a sense. And even in the, you know, in the article, he talks, he puts a lot of work into talking about how the Bible repeatedly says, you know, um, and he went into her and, and reads this in a really explicit way. But e even there, like, this is not actually an explicit term at all, right? Like he went into the bedchamber. He went, like he went, in there right it's like you're watching a movie and the door closes as a man and woman enter into a room you know what happens but it's it's tasteful right it's right. it's being spoken of in a way that is still veiled and so there's still a respect 
to those things which are meant to be intimate, right? That, that are meant to be behind closed doors kinds of things. Yeah, it's 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 it, it's done in a way to give dignity, whereas the yeah, absolutely. The, where the whereas the explicit language found in like the prophet um, Ezekiel, especially though you also have it in Jeremiah, is used to the right. It's this shock treatment about idolatry, right? That's yes, the yeah. that, that tends to be the way um, that tends to be the analogy, right? The one potential exception that you would have de- depending would be in the Song of Solomon. Now, certainly, I don't think you're going to you don't get um, the the type even in the song of solomon you do not get the type of language that you got there right um now what's interesting about this is that that a lot of people may owe uh mark driscoll an apology uh the the man the mind gospel coalition you <laughs> like you're giving I, out the apologies yeah here's here's let's the deal. give one to mr driscoll <laughs> we apparently um and I actually think I think Driscoll is wrong. I do think the Song of Songs is primarily about Christ and the church. Think about it. The whole thing is called the Song of Songs, right? This is the the song above all songs. Obvi- I just don't uh, the Lord of Lords, right? The this is how the the Holy of Holies. This is how the scripture communicates. Um, like th- this is the 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 arch the archetypal greatness in it. And then inside you find symbolic apocalyptic language that is very difficult to read and is used a ton in Revelation. And of course, it is then we understand it as God and his people, Jehovah and his people. Um, And that actually alleviates so many issues. But what we got was so we had Driscoll. He was taking this as a weird handbook, like a it was was like a manual. Yeah, like a like yep. a Christian Jewish Kama Sutra, which was weird and distasteful. I think he said that at one point, didn't he? I mean, I, I, I think, think he, he did. I, mean, I don't, I'm not the kind of person that makes that up. I would not be surprised if that is a direct quote, <laughs> um, given that I listened to that, you know, whole sermon series as a single man, which is insane. Um, <laughs> and that that was preached. Um, so this, this um, presentation to allegorize it, um, you know, has come. But what we got here was, what if we allegorize it and speak as explicitly about sex as Driscoll did? What if we combine those things into, um, into, uh, a, into this, into this? And I think that there is, again, there's a place for us to have a conversation and it's probably going to be on our Patreon, um, where we discuss interpreting, um, the song of songs in how to think about it, uh, allegorically or not. Um, but I do think that, this is the right the the church has not you know nobody nobody's confused about the kind of relationship that the song of songs is communicating in in um in the marriage that it's presenting right and the early church is not shied away from discussing that but i do think again you just like the you you this kind of language used is obviously um foreign to them right even at their most flowerly flowery and allegorical right and and it could just be that we are at this point of of as you t- described at this pornographic we're at this such this explicit age where we are unable to consider marriage 
and these things in the the way that would have been seemed natural throughout history, which ironically is a consequence of our materialism and secularism yep. that we think the end is pointing to these material realities, which mm. uh, again, the maybe the way forward is that that is not where our mind should be right you know like that that is a it's already the failure maybe that's the maybe that's the lesson for us in our post christian secular day right that the failure is that this is already naturally the way our mind conceives of things we conceive of things in the most physical material base way and that's kind of the extent we get hmm yeah, I almost, I mean, whenever these kinds of conversations come up, it seems like somehow we are both like so pornified in how we understand things and see things, right? Everything is just lewd, right? That veil uh, is just torn away and everything is just out there in the open, but also somehow extremely prudish too. And I yeah. don't know how those two things go together, but it just seems like those two things are always going together. And just the the attitude that people have and the way people approach these things. Um, I, and in, you know, in critiquing this, we're not saying that everybody else who critiqued it was critiquing it from the right place. Um, sure. Like there were a lot of folks that jumped on this for, you know, again, not, not uh, good reasons. There's a lot of folks that jumped on, uh, you know, critiquing this and jumped on that bandwagon that if they came to certain texts in the scripture, they would also be like, well, this is wrong, right? This is not right. What the scripture says, right? So, so that kind of mentality is obviously right out. We want to handle this, you know, with care. Um, but it, it is, uh, it is so clearly flawed in the, this kind of, in this kind of approach where you start with, Hey, let's look at this, this particular particular earthly reality and now we're going to show how each little part of this is fulfilled in some weird like direct way right you know not as a whole not as like uh you know an an idea but um in in some directly connected way to each of these you know pieces of the sexual act like it's just it's just weird it's just right. a weird thing to do and but it's not by the way a lot of good folks were pointing this out. It's not weird like it's never been done in Christian history. Correct. Correct. This has been done. I mean, this is not um, the, especially the medieval mystic, uh, yes, mystical writings. Like there, this stuff is all over the place. Um, so, you know, again, there's like this weird, like, I don't know, mix of, of the pornified mind with the prudish mind. We're more prudish than the past, but also more pornified. Like it's all a mess. Isn't and isn't this always the mistake when it comes to allegory, even though I've already said I believe there's a place for it, right? That like Augustine looks at the the story of the Good Samaritan and that the the nard and the shekels and the donkey and the the innkeeper and the inn, they all the innkeeper's Paul and the like that ever that always it becomes these things of um of this kind of over detail and maybe the only explanation i have and then we'll we'll have to cut off here of why we could be both of those things is again we do we live in a pornified society we live in this incredibly indulgent um and depraved time but also because all we have like we don't have we don't have anything transcendent 
like the physical world, if just considered as like a physical world, like when you watch nature documentaries or you see things like that outside of like understanding a created purpose and a creator, even if something like you can believe something feels good or you like it, the physical world can as easily strike you as gross. Like it just like that there, you know, like people like when Pastor Michael's talking about like the things that on the farm, like people actually don't like knowing that about their food or things right. that there's these like, because we also have a, we do have, because we don't have a strong doctrine of the inherent goodness of creation. So everything can, so it's kind of just gross. So actually now nah, I don't want to hear about any of that, even in a proper way. Which right. obviously and that's the prudish element, right? Like that's yes. the this is this brings this kind of prudishness, this weird kind of prudishness, where you're you're disconnected in some way from the reality of sex, from the 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 true earthiness, not worldliness, but earthiness of sex. Right. And on the other hand, everything is just lewd and debased, and yep. you know, and it's just it's just so horrible on either end. And whereas the right, the appropriate thing would be sex as part of God's created design is a good thing, but not a divine thing, not, yeah, yeah. not an icon, not an element of worship, right? Not um, the marriage on a whole. Jesus has already relativized its value because he says in heaven, you will not be given this way. So in fact, it doesn't explain everything and isn't everything. Because Jesus said, ah, that's, I'm going to, we're going to have an, that will come to an end when its purpose is fulfilled yeah. um, in, in the new heavens and new earth. And so, um, yeah, I, well, this is how it's going so far. It's <laughs> all there is to say. This is how it's going. You, where did you think we would be by now with the Keller Center? Where do what? you think it was going to Less start? than one month in. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um Man, article number two, a lot of pressure on article number two. <laughs> Who's, all I have whoever had that like in the lineup, they were probably like, gotta take me off of there. Like, I gotta yeah, yeah. I, I gotta be, be later. <laughs> Dude, these people are gonna be coming Let at me this take a look month. at that article one more time that I sent you. <laughs> yeah, like people are coming at this next one with a fine-tooth comb again. And so I hope our I hope our discussion here on uh the Tim Keller Center Watch Institute for Restless Studies uh has I hope we've engaged in more than just like rage, the like rage content. Um, and so I, I hope that this has, uh, this is, <laughs> there's been something beneficial in this. Well, Pastor Michael, we, we put a hold on two interviews that we're going to be starting to release this week, uh, in order to, to come to the aid of the internet. Um, do we, it'd be great if people rated and reviewed us uh, for doing so, wouldn't it? Yes, please do. If you want to um, hear more restless, but less about this, <laughs> maybe That's go and uh, rate, rate and review. Uh, let us know what you thought and uh, maybe share it with a friend. 